Thank you all so much for being here this morning. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Larry taught on baptism. It was really good, very um, biblical. Amen. <laughs> We'd want to come to church and hear something biblical, I would hope. Um, I mean, he wasn't making stuff up. Um, so it was glad to have a great sermon on baptism. And so I highly recommend going on uh, online and checking out his sermon on that. It was clear. It was very helpful. Um, and I encourage you uh, to do that. Uh, this week, we're talking about the Lord's Supper. And, you know, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're traditionally referred to as the two ordinances of the new covenant. Um, you may have heard others use the term sacraments which in its simplistic form just means that they're sacred religious rituals, which they are. But we typically don't use the word sacrament because it's usually tied to the idea that doing, um, that the doing of these things imparts some sort of divine grace or the idea that you are somehow earning favor from God by doing them. Um, so in light of that, we just used to call them ordinances. Uh, the problem that I think that we might run into with the word ordinance, on the other hand, is that while it may capture the idea of these things being commands to be religiously kept, it does not necessarily capture their significance. The Lord's Supper is symbolic, but it's not merely symbolic. It's ceremonial, but it's not merely ceremonial. It has spiritual significance. Now, I want to clarify. I don't mean that it has some sort of magical significance or that it is more significant than other things that we're called to do. Um, it's spiritually significant to love your neighbor, for instance. Um, I just clarify that it is not just merely symbolic, symbolic or ceremonial. Um, it, if it is not spiritually significant, why would Paul say, that it is possible to partake the Lord's Supper in an unworthy or irreverent way. Now, generally speaking, we should understand this in a worldly sense. Think about this. We don't usually say about Thanksgiving or Christmas, eh, just a holiday. I mean, well, some of you might. I mean, some of you know me and Christmas. You think I, some of you guys don't think I like Christmas. I like Christmas, just for the record. <sighs> But no, we don't just say it's just a holiday. Generally speaking, we say it's a celebration of family or, or it's a giving of thanks for our blessings. It's a, it's a showing of appreciation to those you love and cherish. It's a time to exchange gifts or it's a time to set aside just to enjoy one another's company and to spread joy. Um, and for others, it's a time to remember those that aren't here anymore. Now, if we can understand in that worldly sense how we view a holiday... We should be able to understand that the Lord's Supper is spiritually significant in the life of the church. Now, I want to be clear. The physical act of communion is not automatically spiritually significant. Drinking some juice, eating some bread, in and of itself accomplishes nothing. Doing it on a Sunday doesn't make it significant. Some sort of prayer over it doesn't make it magically significant. But how and why we do it is spiritually significant to the health of the church. The Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table is also referred to as communion. 
And I have these words up on the screen for you to see the different terms that have been used for communion or Lord's Supper or Lord's Table. I don't have it up there, but also in Corinthians 10, they refer to like the Lord's Cup as well. The Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, Lord's Cup is also referred to as communion. The word communion comes from the Greek word koinonia, which in the English is the idea of committed fellowship, joint participation, or intimate spiritual communion. You may have also heard it referred to as the Eucharist, which is a word derived from the Greek that simply means thanksgiving or to give thanks because Jesus actually uses the Greek word for that when he gave thanks and, and broke the bread. That's what the word comes from. All these terms that the church uses and has used are referencing the same thing, but are simply emphasizing different aspects of it. The centrality of it, Jesus, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the Lord's Cup. The participants of it, the church, communion, joint participation. One of the purposes of it, a giving of thanks, Eucharist. With this in mind, we're going to look at the first communion that ever occurred in Luke chapter 22. If you want, you can turn there to Luke chapter 22. Otherwise, we'll have the scripture on the screen. Luke chapter 22, in verse 14. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread, and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 26 adds uh, uh, some more to what happened, and, and the Gospel of Mark also mentions this as well. It says, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, drink ye all of it, for this is my blood in the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now, we'll also notice in 1 Corinthians 11 that in accordance with do this in remembrance of me, Jesus had stated, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This is why the first communion was not the final communion. It was an understood command from Jesus for the church to continually partake in the Lord's Supper together. And that is exactly what the church did. And that's what the church continues to do today. So very simply, that's why we believe in communion. It's because Christ commanded to do it, and the church does it. Now, we see in the Synoptic Gospels that the Lord's Supper was first instituted during what is referred to as the Last Supper. The Last Supper was Jesus' last Passover meal with his disciples. 
Now, the food used in Passover meal was all used to symbolize something in regards to Israel's rescue and exit from Egypt. It was a thing to, to celebrate. Now, we don't have time to go through all of it today, but I encourage you to study that out. It's really awesome. But Jesus, during the Passover meal, takes some of the unleavened bread, which traditionally represents the bread that they hastily brought with them as they quickly left Egypt. And Jesus breaks the bread and he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Keep in mind, they were having a traditional Jewish Passover Seder meal. And he does something that's not part of the meal. He says something that isn't normally said. He's doing something unique at this moment. During the Passover meal, you would also usually have red wine, which according to historic accounts was usually diluted with three-quarters water. The fruit of the vine is said to represent the blood of the Passover lamb. Remembering that, commemorating what the, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb to protect um, those that put that over their doorposts. Now, during throughout the Old Testament, the cup was symbolic. It has symbolic meaning. Now, I'm not a very smart guy. And so if I try explaining it to you, I could say something really wrong and I don't want to mess up Passover. So um, I looked up uh, an article written by David Brickner. He's the executive director of Jews for Jesus. And here's some things that he had to say about this. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is often used as a symbol of God's judgment. For example, the cup of fury, the cup of judgment, the cup of trembling, and the cup of horror and desolation appear throughout the Old Testament. Yet we also find the psalmist crying out, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So the symbol of the cup carries with it pictures of both wrath and redemption, of judgment and blessing. Now traditionally there would be four cups during Passover meal. I'm going to have four cups. I don't mean like four physical cups. I mean they, the cup will be refilled. Um, and so that's what I mean by this, these, these four cups, these symbolic cups. Um, and each cup will be received at different points during the event. According to tradition, the four cups had four different meanings. Now, once again, David Brickner says this. Opinions vary as to what certain cups actually symbolize. Most agree that the first cup is the Kiddush, which means sanctification. With this cup, we begin the Passover Seder. The second cup is called the cup of plagues. The third cup is referred to as either the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. The fourth cup is referred or is often called Hallel, which means praise, though some traditions call it the cup of acceptance. Now, here's why this got really interesting really fast. Is that you typically would drink the third cup after supper. And the Gospels make it very clear that after supper, Jesus took the cup. This would be the third cup. The cup that represents redemption and blessing. And he declares, this is the new covenant in my blood. He is declaring that he has come to redeem many to God and it will be made possible through his blood. And just as the Passover lamb saved many from God's wrath, Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, will save many from God's wrath 
Many will receive the blessing of salvation because Jesus took the cup of judgment. One more time from David Brickner. He wrote, Later that evening in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out to the Lord in anguished prayer, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In his humanity, Jesus could wish that this cup of judgment, the one that everyone except him deserved for breaking of God's covenant, would pass over him. Yet as the obedient son of God, Jesus knew that the cup of blessing could only be poured out for the salvation of many if he would first drink the cup of God's judgment in all humanity. Our Lord was willing to drink this cup, to bear this judgment, to suffer this horror and death that we might be free and forgiven. No wonder the Apostle Paul calls this the cup of blessing which we bless. What greater blessing can there be than that which Messiah purchased for us in his death, burial, and resurrection? In calling this the cup of blessing, and as it was known in the Jewish Passover, the Apostle Paul points out the powerful connection between Passover and the Holy Communion. The roots of the sacrament are sunk deep in the eternal plan of God, which is unfolded through the pages of Scripture, as well as in the traditions of God's chosen people, the Jews. This cup embodies the problem of judgment, as well as the promise of redemption. So, when you receive the Lord's cup, this morning, although it reminds us, right, of what it cost our Lord and Savior, we can also drink it this morning as a declaration that we have received the blessing of redemption through the blood of Jesus and have entered his new covenant. For simplicity and clarity this morning, we're going to talk about four things that communion is. Four things that communion is. We'll go quick now. That was the introduction, right? It's like, oh wait, he's not even in the sermon yet. Yeah, that was the introduction. I had to give you some backstory there of the communion. It wasn't just a random meal. It was a Passover Seder and things symbolized things. And I, I didn't mention this in first service. I'll mention this briefly. Um, there's no reason at all to think that, um, that the wine and the bread magically became the body and blood of Jesus for multiple reasons. Everything was symbolism in the whole meal, and he applies different symbolism to things. Um, plus, he was there, and the blood was still pumping in his veins. <laughs> um, so even though Jesus is, is the Son of God, he also had a human body, and his human body can't be in more place at one time. It couldn't be him and in the cup, in the bread. And plus, that's weird. Um, <laughs> sorry. First of all, this morning, communion is a memorial of Jesus and the cost of his sacrifice. See, during the Last Supper, before Jesus' death, communion that they had was foreshadowing what was about to happen. Today, it points back to what has been finished at the cross. And we'll never be able to fathom the cost of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The perfect Son of God who knows no sin, carrying the weight of sin and having the wrath of the Father upon him. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Praise God for his grace, but don't forget what the cost was. We truly have been bought with a price. 
There is no adjective strong enough that I probably can use to describe the horror and earth-shaking significance of Jesus taking the cup of wrath that we deserved. But he received in our place. The best words to use in describing the cost may come from this prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had no, done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Great was the cost. Not only is it a memorial, but it's also a demonstration of being one body in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says this, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or joint participation of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion, the joint participation of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. The Bible talks a lot about the church and how we are one body in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, which is really funny, by the way, to think of our whole body being a giant eyeball. Um, if the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? 
If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God had tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And now we're going to take the time to focus in here really closely on Colossians chapter 3. It says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. You know, I didn't say it right either time, and that's okay. <laughs> and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you've put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God in your, rule in your hearts, to the which also you're called in one body. And be thankful. You see, the Lord's Supper should be a demonstration of what Colossians 3 is describing. We are being sanctified together. Many members, one body. We're being sanctified together into the image of Christ. We are fleeing sin and pursuing Christ together. We are not divided by ethnicity, culture, social status, or personal preferences. We are rather unified into one body to which Christ is the head. We have been redeemed into this one body, into this one family, and we're being changed into the image of Christ. What's that mean? We don't lie to each other. We're intentionally patient with each other. We forgive one another. We care for and love one another as Christ loves us. This is what the church should look like. And the Lord's Supper is intended to demonstrate that reality. 
Also, Christian couples this morning, this includes you. This includes your marriage. You and your spouse are not only one flesh, but you're also members of one body in Christ. Are you being intentionally patient with one another? Do you forgive one another? Do you love one another as Christ loves you? 1 Peter 3.1 says, Wives to be in subjection to your own husbands. And then 1 Peter 3.7 says, Husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto thy wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So if our church family doesn't look like this, and having the Lord's Supper is supposed to be declaring that, then that would lead us to the third thing that communion is, and that is a reminder of our need to confess sin. It's not like, oh, well, our church doesn't look the way that it should. I guess we can't have communion. (laughs) Well, no, the idea is to restore the church to be what it should be. And to have communion together. It's a reminder of our need to confess sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we come across a gathering of believers for seemingly a special feast. And to partake of the Lord's Supper together. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what the Apostle Paul had to say. In regards to how they were practicing the Lord's Supper. And it's not very pretty. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine gathering with believers? And it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Already out the gate, this is a very sad statement. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. There's supposed to be one body, one unit, but they're divided possibly divided by ethnicity, culture, or status. Paul says, I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. What they're claiming is the Lord's Supper is not what was intended for the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise you the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So what apparently is happening is they, they only bring food to the feast for themselves. They come to the table to serve themselves, not for the purpose of serving the body. They bring wine, and there's plenty for everyone, but they choose to get drunk. Like, this is a really messed up Lord's Supper. No one's sharing any food. People are getting drunk. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine having, like, a church potluck, and someone brings, like, the biggest spread ever? And, oh, that's awesome. Oh, no, this is just for us. You go sit over there. And then for some reason, the Lord's Supper turned into the Lord's party. I'm not sure where this drunken part came in. But that means like the modern context of that. Something that's supposed to be sacred and symbolize these beautiful things became a drunken party. And the people that were poor, that couldn't bring food, 
didn't get any. And then they go, all right, let's drink the Lord's cup. Come to the Lord's table. Celebrate God's grace forgiveness in our lives. The problem is, is what they're doing is not what that is symbolizing. It's a making a mockery of the whole thing. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord, Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show... The Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Once again, the idea here, when he says examine yourself, is not that they would stop having communion. It's that they'll confess their sin. Pursue Christ as they should. Love one another as they should. And then communion could actually be communion. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. Wait on one another. Serve one another. You're not to be divided. You're not to be, you're supposed to be one body. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. If you're going to come to this gathering wanting to serve yourself, go do it at home. That's what he's saying. I can't give them food. I need food for me. Well, the gathering is not about you individually. The gathering is about the body. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Now, the church at Corinth had lots of issues. The church at Corinth was openly living in sin, abusing and neglecting other believers, and then eating from the Lord's table and drinking from the Lord's cup, which was to symbolize that they had been transformed by the blood of Jesus and brought into the family of God. The problem is, is that what communion is intended to represent was not true in their lives. It had become a complete mockery. So Paul warns the believers to examine themselves before partaking. Is this some legalistic call to perfection? Like, you got to make sure all the sin's out before you can drink that cup. Oh, well, what if there's one I forget to confess? Uh, like, no, like, it's not legalistic in that sense. No, it's just a confession of known sin in our lives. It's a confession of forsaking the body. First John chapter 1 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I love this prayer in Psalm 32.5. It says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and now forgave us the iniquity of my sin. 
Now, the Bible also teaches in James 5, 16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. You see, some of our sins directly involve the family. They directly involve our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to confess to them. Now, some of our sin is indirectly affecting our relationships with our fellow believers and maybe even with our spouse. Confess to one another so you can pray for one another so that you may be healed. See, some of you have confessed sin to God but have not addressed how the baggage of that sin has affected your relationships. I'm not saying that God hasn't forgiven you. But there's this thing where like, you know this burden that you've been carrying and you're afraid what someone will think if they find out. That's a burden. That's a leftover burden of sin. How will this affect my marriage? How will this affect my relationship with this person? How will this... And that's a burden of sin that you don't need to carry around. Some of you are carrying around sinful baggage that you're afraid to share, but stop holding on to that burden. Because we're in this together. We're in this together. The Christian life is not us as individuals just going solo. We're in this together. And I'm thankful this morning because coming off of confession, I'm glad that communion is also a declaration and celebration of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 11:26, it says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show, which means to proclaim or declare, the Lord's death till he come. The Lord's Supper declares the good news of the gospel, not just for unbelievers, but for believers. The God who saved you is the God who is sanctifying you, transforming your mind day after day. And it is the payment on the cross that makes that possible. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6.6 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Jude chapter 1 says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Jesus' payment on the cross, it was satisfactory. His payment for our failings was received in full. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, his statement was true. The debt was paid. Hebrews 3.1 says, Who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Hebrews chapter 10 teaches we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. We have something to declare and celebrate this morning. His payment was accepted, and he's still working on me. He, some of you may recognize and acknowledge your sinfulness. I would hope that all of us do. We're sinners. We mess up. We don't always picture the body like we should. We're not always pursuing Christ the way that we should. We're not living our lives the way that Christ would have us to live. But maybe you haven't confessed your shortcomings and your sins because you don't think God will forgive you. Or maybe you have confessed, but you don't feel like he has forgiven you. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover all your sins and shortcomings and to restore you to God. Jesus' blood is sufficient. He loves you. He can forgive you. He wants to forgive you. And his arms are open wide, pursuing you. If we can do this this morning, if there's someone on your left, look at them and say, the blood of Jesus is sufficient. Everybody got excited about that one. If you can't look to your right and tell the person next to you, if there is someone there, the blood of Jesus is sufficient. If there's someone behind you, tell them. If there's anybody in front of you, tell them. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. Amen. Partaking in the Lord's Supper together within community declares this truth, that the blood of Jesus is sufficient. The payment has been made. So yes, communion is symbolic and ceremonial, but not merely. It is a memorial. It's a demonstration. It's a confession. It's a declaration. It's a celebration. Now sometimes we fear focusing on the celebration side of things because we don't want to lose sight of confession. But this is an important paradigm of both confession and celebration. We can confess because we have something to celebrate. We are confessing in light of the cross. We can celebrate because God hears our confession and forgives us of our failings. Jesus paid the debt that we could not pay, and great was the cost. Let's praise his name in celebration. Let's celebrate and proclaim the good news of Jesus by taking communion together. On the other hand, we sometimes avoid focusing on the confession and repentance side of things. And maybe it's because we don't want to sound, I don't know, too Catholic. In our Orthodox Christianity, we recognize that Jesus is our high priest and that we need no other priest. We can go directly to God in prayer, amen? 
But this does not eliminate the need for repentance or confession. It just recognizes that you have a direct line to the throne. See, I'm afraid that my generation and the generation that's coming up within evangelicalism thinks that taking time for confession and repentance is somehow contrary to the grace of God. That's not so. I understand that repentance and confession isn't hip and cool. But it's definitely not contrary to the grace of God. We confess and repent in light of the grace that we have received. We know that if we confess, he will forgive. But if we jump right to, oh, he forgives us, and skip right past repentance, we're not experiencing the grace of God. We're just refusing to address and acknowledge sin in our lives. You're not experiencing the grace of God. You're making a mockery of it. So when you receive this bread and receive this cup with an unrepentant heart, willingly living in your sinful pursuits, holding grudges and bitterness against your brothers and sisters in Christ, including your spouse, eating the bread and drinking the cup is like spitting on his sacrifice. Communion cannot be done in isolation. Thus it's called communion. It is to be done within community. We are one body knit together in Christ. We should pursue Christ and confess our sins together. We should declare his sufficiency to one another.